Pitch Deck Asia. Your story, your words. We're back. This is Pitch Deck Asia. My name is Graham Brown, joined in the studio by Rachel Stravens, all the way from New Zealand. Welcome. Thanks, Graham. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. A bit of a flying visit to Singapore. How long are you here for? Uh, just for the week. So only four days here, actually, in Singapore. Quick trip, but uh, a busy one. Excellent. So you come here quite regularly? Uh, I've been quite a few times over the last year or so. Uh, it's a pretty key area for us to, to get involved with. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a pretty important place to be. We have quite a big Kiwi community here in Singapore. It's a jumping off point, I think, for the rest of the world. Yeah, I think it is. Every time I come here, I meet more Kiwis and more right. Aussies. So um, Excellent. Yeah, it's good, yeah. Good. And we're just talking about Haley and her team as well. I mean, all this um, support that you have here locally as well. It's a great place. I mean, we'll talk about Investor in a minute and what you're doing and what you're building. There's a real movement as well. Australians, Kiwis coming to Singapore as this like vantage point into Asia. In the old days, they used to go to London. Yeah. Earl's Court or Wimbledon and hang out there. But there seems to be a new generation of entrepreneurs coming to Singapore. Why is that? What's going on at the moment? Uh, well, I guess a few things. I mean, firstly, London is um, a lot, 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 lot further away for us to go. Uh, Singapore makes sense. I think New Zealanders, in particular, are really starting to understand the opportunity across Asia um, and are looking more and more to Asian markets rather than, say, the US or London, uh, where they previously may have looked. And so, Singapore. I mean, it's easy for us, right? It's English. It's a nice country. It's really easy for us to sort of come here and, and to get involved. And it's a perfect uh, stepping stone to, to access the wider Asian region, mm, especially when you're involved in financial services yeah absolutely which makes complete sense we've got obviously singapore is a great place for the expat community but the whole of asia now one of the things we talk a lot about is the growth in the middle classes as well they all need financial services everything from wealth management to banking to insurance yeah you know, I think two thirds of the world's middle class are going to be living here by 2030. So if yeah. you're in that space, you're yeah. in the right place. Yeah. And I think, uh, as I said, you know, New Zealanders really are, we're a tiny country, so we kind of need to be looking outside of our country anyway. And we're certainly s starting to understand now the opportunity that, that is here with the population size and um, um, the closeness to New Zealand compared to some of those other markets. Absolutely. They seem to be quite entrepreneurial as well, the Kiwis. I, I sp spent quite a bit of time with Zero. Yeah. who obviously have their sort of Asian office here. And you hear the stories of like Rod Drury and those sort of like Kiwi founders who are yeah. quite sort of scrappy in the early days. They, they just get it built and then they go global. Yeah. What is it in the DNA of what goes on down there? Um, I'm not sure exactly, but I mean, I guess we sort of, a lot of our Kiwi mentality does go back to what we call sort of number eight wired. Um um, What's that? Explain, <laughs> please, elaborate for us, indulge us. A, I guess it sort of goes back to, and, and I'm not an expert on this, but I guess it goes back to our sort of um, agriculture and farming days in terms oh, of number eight wide fencing. Fencing, I was going to say, I've to heard make, this, yeah. Yeah, being able to make sort of anything out of um, um, some, some of that number eight wire fencing. Right, yeah. so number eight wire. Yeah, yeah. You can build anything with this thing. Yeah. Okay, yeah. it's like masking tape or duct tape for exactly. audio engineers. All right, exactly. gotcha. So there's a bit of that hustle in there as well. So yeah. what's your background? Where did you come from? Did you come from the world of finance or you're an entrepreneur? How did you get into this? Yeah, so my background is wealth management. Um, I guess my first job out of university um, was for a wealth management firm and I stuck with that and sort of qualified as an investment advisor providing 
uh, investment and wealth advice to private clients. I mm-hmm. uh, work for a number of corporates uh, and larger financial institutions in New Zealand. Um, but I actually got uh, um, a little bit sort of frustrated with the lack of technology adoption that you saw in some of those bigger corporates. Um, and, and in New Zealand, I think we're probably a little bit more isolated than other parts of the world again. Mm. And so I was sort of looking overseas and seeing some really cool things that are happening in the US in terms of robo-advice and other um, online functionality for clients when it comes to wealth management and investment management. And there was just nothing like that really going on in New Zealand. And um you know, at the time, sort of compliance and regulations, well, it still is, but that was a, a really big thing. And you'd sort of be in a corporate with um, big compliance departments. Mm. And instead of sort of wanting to be able to look for an easier way to do things um, or a simpler way for customers, uh, it kind of seemed like you had compliance departments that were just wanted to say no, that they yeah. weren't really looking to, to entertain much innovation in the way that things were done. Uh, They're so gatekeepers, aren't they, rather than enablers yeah, in these organizations. Yeah, yeah. And so I guess that was sort of my, my frustration point there. And so I stopped, stepped back from that corporate life to look at how we may actually be able to do things differently. Um, I guess I sort of started by thinking, well, this is actually happening overseas already. Mm. Surely at some point it will come to New Zealand. Um, why not be some, somebody that can actually start kickstart that off for us? So mm. you started Investor. Was that yep. your first venture into the world of entrepreneurship? Uh, yes. And yep. you'd worked in banking before that. Yeah. So when you, we'll talk about Investor in a minute. When you started that day one, what was the the thoughts that were going through your head? Because you'd lived in a very comfortable corporate life where a lot of things were done for you. Yeah. And now you were going on your own. Were you literally out there starting day one from zero? Did you line everything up beforehand? Because people... Some people just dive in the deep end and it's like, okay, it's all or nothing now. And some people have it all lined up with the clients ready and already the products they've been working on mm. the side hustle mm. for months. What was your situation? Uh, I guess I was sort of at a um, at a crossroads in terms of my career. I could have kept on doing what I was doing or I could have sort of taken a step back and, and looked at other options. And so I actually took a step back and took some time to actually figure out what I wanted to do mm. and how this might work and, and if it was feasible. So I did take, um, after sort of finishing my corporate role, I did take quite a while to, to sort of step back. And I think you kind of need that clear head um, space often to be able to have um, um, these kind of processes and to come through with these kind of thoughts. So um, at the start, it was um, sort of about me being able to see what we could do in terms of innovation within the finance space and wealth management space. And it really sort of grew from there. There was no big intentions necessarily to start with. It was just sort of to see what we could actually do to improve the space and improve the sector. Mm. And it's kind of uh, continually grown since then. It's an interesting conversation about the the driver of why you do it. Mm. And I know there's a lot of talk about these sort of big whys that people have and like, I'm going to change the world and, you know, I want to make the world a better place and so on. But I tend to find is that the most of the... Um, startup founders that I talk to don't have that. They just want to fix something mm. that they've seen that's broken. And especially a lot that come from the corporate world, the corporate dropouts, mm. which is, you know, in a very positive way, like <laughs> the college dropouts. There's yeah. this whole generation of entrepreneurs who are coming through who know what's broken from 20 years of experience of working in the field. They want to fix that one thing because mm. it's a mm. frustration to them. They mm. don't want to go out and say, right, I'm going to change the world. I just want to fix that that then becomes a bigger thing. What was it for you that you were looking at? What was that, what you were trying to fix? You said that you knew something wasn't working quite right. Yeah, so one of the big things for me was access to advice and access to good quality advice. So if you worked, uh, you know, a lot of the big corporates sort of have um, 
um, minimum investment sizes in terms of if you're a customer to actually go mm. and get advice from them. You know, you've got to pay reasonably high fees. And this is going back a few years now, but they did have minimum investment sizes and, and you did have to pay reasonably high fees, which meant that that advice was actually unattainable for a, a, quite a big sector of the um, population. Mm. What kind of fees are we, minimum level are we talking about here? Just so we can put some numbers on it. Uh, I guess in terms of percentage fees, um, um, certainly 1% and above in terms mm. of your, your funds uh, under management. Um, but in terms of portfolio sizes, you know, a lot of those companies uh, would prefer to deal with you only if you had sort of 500,000 or a million or more to invest. Mm. And so that excludes a lot of people who are either A, just starting off, um, sort of, you know, younger, looking to save and, and set themselves up correctly for the future. Um, all those people who are sort of closer to retirement and don't have a huge amount of money but want to be able to make really good decisions with what they did have. Um, and a lot of those people are actually getting excluded from that process because they couldn't afford the fees or they didn't have the minimum amount to be able to actually go and get good quality advice on that. Mm. Um, and so for me, that was uh, sort of a pretty big issue in terms of, well, how do we actually make this advice channel um, available to people um, so that a lot more people can actually make sort of better financial decisions. Why do those wealth managers only deal with people 500k up? Just as an example, what is that? Is it just too expensive to service the walk-in customers who just want to buy, you know, a product or? Is, or is it some sort of a bit of elitism? What's the sort of mindset um, behind it? I think there's probably both elements there. I mean, certainly when you're working in a model where it's a personalized advice in terms mm. of you're dealing with an advisor who's spending their time to, to work with you and to give you that advice, that is a very high cost model. So it does cost them a lot to provide that model. But I think there probably also is a little bit of elitism as in uh, they sort of would prefer to deal with the higher value clients who are um, who they're going to be generating higher fees off and mm. Um, and that type of thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you've identified what's broken. Let's have a look at the problem. Let's bring in investor here. Yeah. We've got your pitch deck. I'm going to jump to slide three first. Great. Um, you've got a bit of text here. Bear in mind, some people are listening. So um, you might have to explain a little bit. What, what, first of all, what is the problem? Just let's just define the problem in a, in a statement and then talk about what the solution is to that. Yeah, so. sure, sure. So I guess in terms of when you're looking at wealth and asset management, um, as I sort of just mentioned, typically it's been run from a very high cost model where it's uh, a lot of face-to-face -face interaction with an advisor. And that's a very sort of old school model, right? You look around the world today and everything we do is online. It's on our digital um, um, devices. It's on our mobile phones. And I think the wealth and asset management sector in some areas has been very, very slow to shift to that change. Our customers today do expect really good functionality with their online investment products, and not everybody is actually living up to that standard. Mm. Um, there's still a lot of manual forms. There's still a lot of paper-based forms. A lot of things are done via email. It's quite an inefficient process. Isn't this all compliance, though, and that has to be done by paper and signed? And That would well, be the argument, I guess, for that, right? Yeah, but not necessarily. I mean, you can actually put all of those processes online and automate those, as long as you've got good controls and good processes around that. Um, most of that can be moved to an online environment and that saves significant costs for the company actually providing these services and it does allow them to reduce the cost to the end customer and it provides that customer with a much nicer online experience mm -hmm. uh, to be able to access these tools and the, these sort of advice uh, for their investment or their wealth management when they want it and how they want it rather than having to sort of um, have a face-to-face -face meeting or, or in a personal relationship with an advisor. So can you service somebody as well as an individual could as in that personal relationship? relationship through a chatbot 
or whatever the, the platform offers? Uh, I think technology now is fairly good so that you can um, certainly provide a very good, very good service relationship. A lot of people will still want some of that personal interaction mm. with somebody. I think it's about figuring out for, for each particular business um, what that combination of technology and an actual pers- human relationship looks like mm. uh, because I think there is a place for both of them. Right. Um, and there is a lot of the, the sort of more man- mundane and general type of things that can be automated, which actually frees up the advisor's time to be able to provide a real value-add service um, for, for parts of that relationship. Yeah, I've seen parallels in the insurance industry where they're employing a lot of automation yeah. to um, improve the experience because it, it's fiercely competitive. and Yeah between providers there's not a lot of differentiation and also they're all underwritten pretty much by the same people anyway they're just kind of different front ends Mm. and i've seen people use chatbots most effectively on the servicing side of the policy so for example if something goes wrong and you need to claim you can access a chatbot 24 7 yeah and it will help you out and it's done to the point that a chatbot may be a sort of a a substitute for a human being. In this case, it's actually a lot better because I want to claim normally my policy manager or advisor is asleep mm. at this time. Yeah. Yeah, I've got a claim right now. A chatbot will do that and it won't take a holiday and it will get back to you straight away. So in that case, that automation can give a lot better experience. Mm. It, does that also apply with financial services and wealth management? Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. You know, you can access it whenever you want from wherever you want rather than having to wait, Yeah, as you say, till your advisor's awake um, or having to meet them in person. It just provides so much more functionality to be able to use some of these online tools. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. cool. Let's have a look at some of them then. We're back into the pitch deck. Um, th- there's a few slides on the solution itself. Maybe we can just sort of give a brief overview of all of these. You've got the platform. You have all the aspects of the core functionality here, the modules, and then the white labeling part of it. Um, there's a little bit about the benefits here as well. Can you just sort of summarize, summarize the package? What is it? Sure. So um, just going back to our journey. So when we started, we actually started providing these products direct to consumer in a B2C model. Um, over sort of the last um, couple of years, we've really tested those products in the market with our end users and found out what they like, what they didn't like. And, and we're really able to optimize our process throughout that time. Um, what we do now is we actually provide those solutions via white label to other financial service providers who are looking to improve their customer experience and to automate some of those um, customer-facing interactions. So we provide a range of modules that would come together and form sort of a core interface or platform for a wealth manager or an asset manager. And that could include things like customer onboarding, um, AML, KYC, um, a customer dashboard or client portal for customers to be able to come through and manage their investment and check the performance, check the, how it's tracking, various information about their funds and their investments. Uh, and we'd also provide the management portal so that management can go in and have a really good sort of online oversight about what their customers are doing and, and sort of how their, their client base looks. Okay. You said you when you started out, um, you were testing it with end users and learning about them. What, what do you know now about wealth management and particularly what you're doing with the digitizing of wealth management and building these platforms that you didn't know when you started out? Because obviously you've improved and you've changed stuff. Yeah. Have you had 
assumptions that have been challenged? Have you learned a bit about how people use these products? What can you share with us? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think we've we've come a l- very, very far in that regards. When we first started out, I remember our first um, sort of customer testing session was, was in a room with a group of, uh, I guess, millennials and sort of looking through sort of a very, very first initial product of ours. And they pretty much ripped it to shreds in terms right. of the functionality <laughs> and, well, this doesn't work and that doesn't work and why can't we do this? And so what we have learned through that process is to get people involved from the very very early days and get that feedback continually coming through to help you sort of continually optimize Mm. what you're doing and you know you never really understand the issues or the flaws until you actually see somebody else using it yeah Um, you know when i'm sort of testing the product myself i'll click through various things and yeah that works fine i don't have any issues but when you see it in the hands of somebody else you actually understand the problems that they have or their sort of thought process so we've come a really long way uh, on that regard it's tough though isn't it i mean you that scene when you were sitting with those millennials and you're presenting your first yeah. you know, iteration of the, the prototype or whatever. Yeah. Um, how was that to have them rip it apart in front of your eyes? Um, it was it was a little bit sort of um, hard to take, um, but at the same time, it really made us understand, wow, we should have been doing this, right. um, you know, months ago. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, at the end of the day, we came out of it a lot better off because we were able to sort of have those um, discussions with people and dig into it a lot more with them. So while it's hard to hear, um, I think at the outset that, you know, your product doesn't stack up in terms yeah. of what you thought it might have done. Uh, it's so valuable to get that feedback. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to put yourself in a position to receive it as well, which yeah. is not, I think that's coming from the corporate as well. You can easily shield yourself from that, can't you? Because mm. it's comfortable. You don't yeah. have, you have your focus groups, you look at them through the glass, all that kind of stuff. What what kind of things did they feed back to you? What kind of um, insights did they share with you? What did you take away from that session that you thought, oh, wow, that's a real challenge to my what I think about this. Yeah, a lot of it was usability in terms of how they sort of worked or progressed through some of those workflows. We'd kind of made assumptions about how we might go through something and the questions that might come up in our minds as we were working through that process. Um, so we got additional feedback on that. I think the other thing that came through was really about what they saw an ultimate product could look like or what mm. that they kind of saw amazing functionality to look like and sort of all these other things that we hadn't really necessarily considered would, would kind of come into the picture yet. So I think that really for us gave us an idea about, hey, we're starting on this track here, but there's so much more that we can do in this environment and people actually want this. You know, mm. this is if somebody's sort of thinking about their ideal product for, for this type of um, thing for, for wealth management or for, for managing their finances, there's all these other things that they actually would like to sort of have involved in here um, and, and how how do you incorporate bits of that where do you incorporate elements of that and sort of how that all comes together was that because they had seen other things they had expectations or is that because you know their, their expectations of experience now are so high you know there's so many companies now like the Alibaba yeah. and people in this world who are producing amazing customer experiences mm. What was that? Was it because they were millennials? or what? I think a combination. I think people's expectations now are very, very high. Um, you know, we've seen sort of in the retail space uh, for retail products globally that that's fiercely competitive in terms of online um, customer experience mm. and online purchasing. And, and I think because of some of these other industries that have come through and have been very, very competitive online, customer expectations are very high now. And I think in a lot of areas, the wealth and asset management industry has fallen behind because people have already been 
been through these experiences with with other industries, and they've got such high expectations. Right. Okay. Um, and I mean, millennials uh, and sort of younger generations, you know, everything's online now, uh, and so that's just the expectation. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and it has to be, as you say, like the usability has to be right up there. Yeah. Not what they would have been used to getting at the bank and so on. So, yeah. And. Are you targeting specifically at millennials or is that just happened to be a group of people that, you know, one of your largest user base or how does it sort of break down demographically? I mean, millennials is, is a huge um, um, force or population size globally and, and they are sort of set to inherit huge amounts of wealth from baby boom appearance. Um, so while... Um, you know, even even today, everybody kind of expects online functionality, right? But it's even more critical in that millennial generation. Mm. And so moving forward, it's only get more and more important, especially as this generation inherits their parents' wealth and, and comes to look for um, online tools to be able to manage that moving forward. So if they were to inherit their parents' wealth, typically what happens next when that happens? What What's the sort of the, the broken pathway that they go through? Do they go to the guy in the bank and he says, oh, you need one of these? Because mm. they don't have anybody to turn to or they speak to a financial advisor who's going to sell them products because they're tied to a life company or something like that. Mm. How, how does mm. it work? I've actually just done some research on this recently, which is quite interesting, which says that when millennials do inherit, I think it was something, I think it was something like 60 or perhaps 80% of them will not stay with the advisor that their parents were with. And that's is why I think it's so critical for um, you know incumbent firms to actually embrace innovation to be able to have a product that really does attract um, these millennials to actually encourage them to stay with their company. Um, because you know millennials coming through will be looking for the new yeah. products out there. You know, big tech companies coming through and offering financial services. Well, if um, sort of incumbent asset and wealth management and banks are not at that same level, I think they'll quickly be losing these uh, sort of future customers through to big tech companies moving into the space. Where do they start that journey? If they did, they say, "I need a wealth manager." I don't even know they know they exist, right? They don't have that idea. They may yeah. say, "Bank." Oh, there's a guy at work in who works in, I don't know, HR or in the, the, the accounts department who yeah. might be able to help me. Or, I mean, I even remember going through the situation, an estate lawyer th through an inheritance, she started recommending mm. people to mm. me. So, like, you know, there isn't sort of a defined route, is there, like where you go? I mean, do people just reach out and go, oh, I understand Virgin. They seem like a trusted brand. Mm. I'll go with them. Mm. They seem to have something. How does it work? Yeah, I think, I mean, traditionally um, – a lot of these sort of decisions would have been um, people who have been re referred through to you from a trusted source, whether that perhaps be your accountant, whether it's sort of other peers. Um, and that's sort of how the model, I think, has worked traditionally in terms of being referred to, you know, a couple of different mm. companies or a couple of different people who may be able to help you. Um, ideally, um, people are having these conversations already in, in terms of sort of setting themselves up so that they can sort of be well prepared for when this situation does um, happen. But but now everything's online. So so it's about, you know, which companies are uh, sort of doing the coolest or the newest kind of things mm. within the sector, you know, who's in the news that we all sort of hear about. Um, so I think that model has changed a little bit in terms of going from where it was very much sort of a referral source from a, from a trusted uh, third party um, through to an online um and search sort of, yeah, yeah yeah keywords yeah what do, what are people typically looking for in these situations what what are sort of the common products that people look for do or do they look for products or do they, do they have specific phrases that they look for or i need help with my money or i've got some money i need to invest it or i need to start a pension where does that journey start in all of that um good question i think i mean 
people do have relationships with providers at the moment, you know, whether it's just your bank account, um, your bank manager, there's sort of a whole lot of relationships that people do have. And it's about talking to your friends, right? There's always mm. going to be discussions about, um, you know, which app you're using to trade shares or to sort of start these kind of things. Um, so, and it varies. People, Different people are looking for different things. Um, some people will sort of want want to seek out some of that advice about how do I manage my money for retirement, for example. Yeah. Um, others will be just looking for more exciting kind of things like share trading or, or stock trading. So, so it is quite a varied journey, I think. Mm. Yeah. I, in my previous life, I used to be a financial advisor oh, many wow. years okay. ago, yeah. and uh, I, I remember that nobody ever came in asking for a pension or life assurance. Right. <laughs> nobody ever asked for life assurance. Very rare. People always would come in and say, I want to invest in the markets, or yet the most profitable products were always the ones that people didn't ask for. It was always the life assurance and the, the pensions and so on. Yeah. So I wonder when you look at like the market now that you have banks and you mentioned like, you know, trading platforms and you haven't, everybody can sell products. Mm. Yeah. Everybody seems to be quite sort of vertical, don't they? Is that like, I just do this. And yet you've got people like Alibaba's coming into the world who's just going to do everything. Now. Mm. They're going to mm. sell everything that you could, everything from insurance, maybe to even wealth management's in mm. there as well. Mm. How's that sort of market evolving? Who's sort of really getting it right at the moment? Well, I think we have been through quite a change with that model. I mean, sort of going back historically, you know, we sort of look at the banks and the financial institutions who have provided a lot of those sort of services and covered a lot of those areas. And what we've seen over the last uh, sort of few years is is that's been um, broken up quite a lot. So that there's different providers sort of coming through and offering just one part of that picture. Mm. And what we I think it's actually trending back the other way a little bit more now in terms of, as you say, some of these big tech companies coming through. And because their customer base is so big, because because their user experience is so so good, um, they're actually able to sort of come in and offer a whole lot of these things. Right. Yeah. Is is it coming from the the retail side or is it sort of the wealth management side? Because I see, for example, like if you look at retail banking, which is not wealth management, for example, like you see companies like Revolut or these sort of really radical companies trying to disrupt the whole thing. Yeah. I don't know what's happening on this side with wealth management. Are, are, is there similar kind of things happening or is it these guys who are also bringing in those services because they have a relationship with the customers as well? Uh, there is absolutely the same type of thing going on in wealth management. You know, like over in the US, there's several companies coming through, uh, sort of standalone fintech companies that have been operating for a while now that provide that online wealth management experience. Um, so there's definitely that element to it in, mm. in the retail wealth, wealth management space as well. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Where are you now with the company? Let's talk about that in your journey. You started the company when? Three years ago? Yeah. We've just been going for half? just a, yeah, three years. Yeah, yeah. So 2016, right? Was yeah. It? Okay. So you're three years in. Yeah. Where are you now with size um, in terms of you know your progress of the company? I guess you're live three years in, right? I mean, um, where are you with your growth plans and so on? Yeah, so we have been on quite a journey over those three years. As I said, we started out actually providing the products direct to consumer and have been quite over quite a shift now to focusing purely on on providing that through as a B2B service. So we've really been um, um, sort of working on that strategy for the last six months and really bedding that down. And I think we're in a really good position now um, with the work that we've been doing in New Zealand with a number of New Zealand companies and looking to bring the offering through for them. And we're actually looking now to, about how we can expand that and really roll that model out across um, other areas for growth. So Asia for us is a particularly big um, area of interest um, given the population size um, and sort of 
a lot of the other demographic um, characteristics behind it. Um, and a lot of there is a few other markets globally that we're looking at as well. But I think we are sort of really well now positioned to actually look at leveraging some of those learnings that we've been through in New Zealand mm. and bringing them out to other markets for growth. Yeah. How many people have you got back in New Zealand? Well, we've got our team split between New Zealand and India. We actually mm. have our development team in India, mm. uh, which is where most of our team sits um, there. We are quite heavy on the development side um, in terms of getting all our uh, platforms and things through. Um, but we will be looking to expand um, our um, our sort of team across uh, the Asian region with um sales um, yeah. staff coming through to help us really expand and grow across the area. When you talk about Asia, what do you mean exactly? Because Asia is very diversified and geographically yeah. it's huge as well. Yeah. There's many Asias within Asia. What, yeah. what are you looking at at the moment? Uh, look, there's several different markets that we have started to, um, to look at and do some research on. I mean, obviously for us, Singapore is a pretty key hub mm. um, but all of the market all of the sort of areas around that are as you say quite diverse um, so we've sort of uh, spent a bit of time in the Philippines uh, and a few other areas around here just really sort of getting to understand the local markets and sort of the ins and outs the intricacies and how our products may um, work within those particular markets because they are, are all quite different mm. um, and so it's about I think finding the right countries that we want to be operating in and the right model that we can use to expand into those countries. So you mentioned Southeast Asia, for example. I yeah. mean, if you look at the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, uh, just it, those alone, maybe even Thailand. I mean, that's like nearly 400 million people, 350, 400 million people. They are fast, em exclude Singapore, they're fast emerging countries. Yeah, They're very young. You know, I think 50% of the population in Indonesia are under 35. Yeah, um, Are they target customers for you? Because somebody might argue that they just don't have enough money to invest yet. They're still trying to get established. They're still sort of, they're not thinking about long term. They're just thinking about here and now. I'm just thinking, I'm talking about how people talk about them generally and maybe yeah, years yeah. ago. Is that changing now? What are you seeing in these markets? Do you think that they are thinking about wealth management? Look, I think in a lot of these countries, there is certainly an emerging middle class um, that are coming through, um, you know, living conditions and standards are increasing. Um, and so there is certainly this emerging middle class coming through. And while they may not necessarily need some of these services here and now, it's certainly something that they will be needing in the future uh, mm. for a bigger proportion of those, um, of that population. Yeah, absolutely. T typically, what would they want? Do they, I mean, do they, I mean, do the people in Indonesia or the Philippines, are they asking for things like, estate planning or is it you know like capital gains tax I don't know I mean what do people ask for I mean in these markets because I think for example like you talked about in New Zealand or wherever you know if you lived grew up in the developed world you you would have learned because people would have told you this is what you need mm. or you would have mm. spoken to a lawyer or an accountant and they would have advised you accordingly but there'll be like generations of education in there right mm. you know mm. my, my parents said you should sort your pension out because they had one. Yeah. Now yeah. you need to get one. I'd imagine in a market like the Philippines, that's not the case, right? So what's kind of happening? Yeah, look, I don't think too many people are probably looking at estate planning. It's not exactly that sexy. It's not all that cool. Just like retirement planning, is not. it's the same thing, right? So nobody, I don't think, really is... Well, certainly younger generations are not really looking that far ahead, but what they are looking to do is, is sort of saying, how do I get a little bit ahead? You know, how do I sort of take that first step now, which is going to make me that little bit further ahead? Um, 
rather than sort of looking at, you know, too much further down the track in terms of actual retirement or estate planning. Right. Would that yeah. be like savings plans? Or? Yeah, savings plans, initial investments. You know, how do we sort of start investing in the share right. market? How do we start making these kind of uh, decisions and get in? Even though we may only have a small amount of money to invest, how do we actually right. access some of these things now? Okay, good. Yeah. Let's talk about how big this could be, investor. Well, when you think about the future, what could this be? What could investor be geographically and in terms of scope and what it offers as well yeah. and who's using it? Do you have that kind of grand vision for it potentially? Maybe you talk about it internally, maybe you talk about it with potential investors. Yeah, look, um, we see that um, customer interface and that customer uh, interaction is so critical and so important. And when you look at companies um, that are incumbent companies that are already operating in this space, I think it's very, very difficult for them to be able to continually provide that really great customer experience. And mm. so we, we see that that's something um, that companies there will want to be able to continue to work partner with um, companies such as us to, to provide that piece there. So we see that it's a pretty huge opportunity. Um, at the moment, we are sort of already um, talking with businesses here in Singapore and uh, London and uh, Italy. Um, so we are already sort of seeing some of those conversations happening at a pretty big global scale. And we see that there is a pretty big uh, potential opportunity here. Uh, we're certainly excited about about the prospects ahead and um, the opportunities in front of us. Yeah. yeah. When you talk about customer experience to these these financial institutions, what is the business case for them? Is it customer experience equals reduced churn or is it more product sales is it better brand awareness how, how mm. do they sort of take that in because for them customer service traditionally has been a cost center isn't it they outsourced yeah. it. i mean that was also the mistake wasn't it they outsource it to the philippines or to india and you had those kind of like negative customer service experiences that mm. banks and financial institutions, you know, they thought that was the way to go. Then a lot of people started onshoring this again mm. and they're sort of confused. It's costing us money, yeah, but yeah. it's not doing anything for us because they're looking at it the wrong way. What's the sort of business case for customer experience? Look, like I think a, a huge big part of this and, and, it is easy to justify this to businesses because what we're doing while we're providing this really good customer experience is we're actually taking all of those manual processes in the background and automating them. So there is a huge cost saving there for companies uh, where they're sort of getting rid of those outdated, you know, paper-based um, systems and sort of automating and providing some of those self-service tools that means that their customers can um, go some ways to helping themselves through their online environment. So there is quite a big cost savings there for businesses that we're working with. Uh, I think the other key thing that people are sort of starting to, to realize now is that, you know, there is an expectation for online functionality. And if they don't come to the party with those mm. features that customers will want, well, pretty soon they'll be losing those customers to the big tech companies that are coming into this area. As mm. you mentioned, Alibaba and, you know, a number of other companies are sort of looking to get into the, the finance space. And so if, if the sort of the larger companies and the incumbents are not actually moving ahead with the times, um, you know, they'll, they'll be struggling to stay relevant to new generation investors coming through. Very interesting. Is that fear real at the moment? Do do the bankers get it? Do they Not all of them. Not, not all, all of them. Um, yeah. you, you know, there's there's certainly a lot of conversations that we're having now with people that do understand that and mm. are sort of really getting on this path. Um, but there are still, you know, we do still have um, a lot of conversations where there's sort of 
um, thinking that well, fintech's not really going to disrupt disrupt yeah. us too much, you know. So so it's definitely very mixed. You have got the uh, more progressive people at one end of the scale, but there is sort of still quite a lot of um, uh, companies at the other end who who aren't really understanding of the threat that's facing them through this. Mm. Yeah, I think that the key to that problem is the benchmarking, isn't it? It's that, you know, we're as good as the other banks, that sort of benchmarking mindset. Mm, mm. That will be their undoing in the future because somebody who doesn't play by those rules will come in yeah. and just revolutionize the customer experience. Mm. And they'll start by picking away at all the people who are buying certain types of wealth management services. And then suddenly they'll add to that a deposit function and yeah. so on. And then you've suddenly built a bank through the back door. That's the yeah. that's the real fear, isn't it, for banks that Yeah, that and you're already seriously... seeing that happening, you know, in some of these overseas markets in the UK in particular where the digital banks and the neo banks are coming through. You're already right. seeing a lot of that sort of uh, starting to happen. So I think it is really um, eye-opening for a lot of people, some of the things that are coming through now. And is I think that it's only... real though? I mean, you know, like in the UK, for example, I haven't been in the UK for many years, but like we've seen a lot of those digital banks come in and the yeah. neo banks, right? Yeah. But are they are they honestly taking away market share or is it mind share more that they're taking away from the banks? Um, look, I don't know the exact um, uh, sort of underlying numbers, but certainly they're growing their customer numbers right. pretty quickly. And so they've got to be coming from somewhere, right? Right. I mean, perhaps people have still got their regular bank account uh, with their other provider, but they're also opening up new accounts with these new digital banks that are coming through. And that's got to be of concern. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, because it will get to a tipping point, yeah. won't it? Very yeah. interesting. Yes. I mean, I think if you walk down to the promenade here in Singapore and you have a look at the all the offices behind, mostly banks, I think there's like 25 skyscrapers of which 14 or 15 are banks. They're all jammed in next to each other, ANZ, UBS, mm. UOB, DBS. They even got the same name. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the problem. They're all sort of looking out the window and thinking, what are they doing over there? And I think that's why that whole customer service piece is something which the right banks will get it and they'll say look we're thinking not just about protecting here and now mm. but you know we are in the business of protecting wealth in the future as well we're mm. looking like six months six years 20 years down the line and we can see these guys coming in with a better experience and mm. taking away our customer base right yeah so we got to start now yeah. And that sort of thing is an interesting conversation. Not everybody's going to get it. Yeah, I think the banks are, you know, the banks have certainly come a, a long way over the last uh, five five years probably in that regard. Um, what we're actually seeing is that, you know, those big banks have got the money and the budget to be able to bring these types of offerings through if, if they're um, sort of focused enough to do so. But there's actually the underlying layer of, of sort of mid-tier um, asset managers, wealth managers who don't have those kind of big budgets to be mm. able to afford you know, the in-house development themselves, um, but they're looking for solutions. Uh, and I think for us in particular, it's where the real opportunity lies, is that, you know, there is people coming through looking for these types of products and these types of solutions, um, but they're not going to go out and develop it else themselves. And that's where they're looking for somebody to come in and um, be able to provide that. That's you guys. That's right. That's there us. you go. Yeah. Rachel Strevens, everybody from Investor, thank you so much for coming to the studio today. Thanks, and um coming to Singapore. Yeah. And hopefully this is a, a profitable trip for you. In terms of contacting you, are you active on LinkedIn? Is that a good way for people to reach out to you? Yeah, absolutely. Send me a message through there and I should be able to uh, respond back to you. 
Excellent. And what kind of people would you like to reach out particularly that are you looking for partnerships? Are you recruiting um, future investors and so on? Any of the above? What Are you looking for anything specific at this stage? Yeah, look, we're looking for opportunities uh, for partnerships for us to be able to sort of expand into some of these um, Asia, um, Asian markets, Southeast Asia in particular. Mm. Um, we will be looking for a capital raise over the next um, uh, coming six months or so. So we're starting to, to sort of talk to people in that space now. What we are looking for is, is investors that can help us grow across the region um, so we are sort of starting to talk to people in that area now excellent you know where you can contact rachel rachel thank you so much for today great fantastic thank you excellent we're done that was pitch deck asia powered by pitch media asia my name is graham brown pitch deck asia is a platform to give startups in asia a voice we give them a show to help them tell their story and if you love these startup stories and like hearing more about the journeys of the founders go and check out our soundcloud channel which is available at pitchdeck.asia slash soundcloud that's pitchdeck.asia slash soundcloud head along to the channel subscribe follow us and feel free to leave a comment or a rating on our channel as well we'd love to hear your feedback